This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 24th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. It was a retroactive fix in an attempt to make legal surveillance activities that the U.S. Attorney General refused to authorize. And now we know how it happened. Julian Sanchez, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, discusses this surveillance authority fix that had to travel back in time. There is a famous showdown between essentially Alberto Gonzalez and John Ashcroft when Ashcroft was attorney general and uh, Gonzalez was working uh, more directly for the White House. Gonzalez wanted authorities to engage in certain surveillance and Ashcroft sat up in his hospital bed and said, no, you can't do that. And now we have learned that the Bush administration uh, traveled back in time, in a sense, to give greater powers to the federal government to engage in surveillance. So so what happened? So this is a, a fascinating story. It's probably one of the most dramatic moments, at least it's been made public, in the post-9-11 uh, evolution of uh, the surveillance state. Um, this was a, a dispute while John Ashcroft was hospitalized. James Comey, now FBI director, was acting attorney general and had... Uh, found a, a bit of a hitch in the Stellar Wind collection. This is what was originally revealed as the warrantless wiretap program that the New York Times disclosed in 2005. Uh, but as we now know, was was broader than that, was not just warrantless wiretapping, but warrantless collection of um, uh, internet uh, content and metadata, as well as telephone metadata, and all of this circumventing the statutory process laid out for intelligence surveillance in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. And, you know, after an initial phase, we know when John Yu had developed a theory that essentially the Article II powers of the president allowed him to effectively uh, ignore legislation at will, uh, a, a somewhat more measured uh, legal theory was deployed to justify this surveillance, which was uh, rooted in the 2001 authorization uh, for the use of military force against al-Qaeda and associated forces as determined by the president. So this was fairly broad language uh, allowing the president to wage war against target uh, al-Qaeda and associated forces and co-conspirators. And this was interpreted under the, the theory that supplanted use uh, whatever I want to do theory um, to mean also uh, conduct surveillance so that uh, basically with respect to these categories of targets, the FISA process was no longer required because Congress had authorized the president to determine uh, what force to use against those people. And the, this, uh, you know, whatever you think of that theory, there are lots of criticisms you could raise of it like, um, gosh, Congress also had passed the USA Patriot Act. It didn't look like they thought they had carved out all these huge exceptions in, in the nor- normal FISA process. But uh, a non-crazy legal theory, certainly something you know better than than the uh, U sort of plenary authority theory. The trouble is that it uh, did not really work very well for bulk collection of metadata. For the collection of content, uh, whether or not the determination that these were terrorists was correct, um, at least you could point to the the act Congress had passed and say, okay, well. The president has made a determination that these categories of people are uh, are legitimate foreign targets. Um, that's fine as far as content goes. But when it comes to metadata, the way they were using this was to try and look for new targets. They were collecting it indiscriminately. And so there was no way when you're collecting in bulk, um, there was not really any plausible way to say, oh, well, um, 
you know, these are all al-Qaeda and associated forces. It was everyone, including domestic uh, communicants, metadata as well. Um, and so what we find happened here is that the president altered uh, over time the language and the authorizations he was providing to NSA. So the initial order uh, seems to track at least somewhat the uh, authorization for the use of military force. And then later, uh, when this became an issue, there are really two issues here. One is the statutory question, um, because at least collecting internet metadata is clearly electronic surveillance as defined by FISA. So there was the question of whether uh, the president could actually override that when you don't have a good argument that the authorization for the military uh, use of military force language covers it, um, but also the question of just whether the collection was consistent with the presidential directive or whether the agency was collecting much more than had been authorized. Uh, the president retroactively effectively said, um, not only do I now authorize the, collect the, uh, the uh, obtaining of uh, all this metadata, um, I retroactively determined that my previous authorizations included this authority. Um, this reminds me more than anything of, of in, the, in the great beloved comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, there was a game that, that Calvin and Hobbes used to play called Calvin Ball, um, where essentially the players make up the rules as they go along. So, oh, I tagged you, you're out. No, it's Tuesday. The rules are reversed, so now you're out. Um, you have here, as in a lot of, I think, uh, intelligence operations, the appearance of a strictly rule-governed structure, but with rules that are altered uh, when they become inconvenient, uh, not just prospectively, but retroactively. We saw something very similar with the use of uh, national security letters where uh, the uh, FBI had been circumventing even the kind of thin legal approval process to get people's communications data using national security letters uh, and just getting it basically on, on request and with post-it notes. Uh, and so to cover this after the fact, they issued a handful of legitimately approved national security letters for those previous 10,000 requests. It was, uh, I mean, a, a way of, of saying, you know, effectively, well, look, no, see, we're, com we're, we're complying uh, with the letter of the law. And so uh, none of these rule violations really count anymore because we have retroactively blessed them. We also see here, I think, uh, interestingly, one of the origins of uh, the the confounding NSA dictionary. One of the frustrating things about trying to understand what our government is doing is that very often intelligence officials use uh, use terms in a very specific way that differs from the way an ordinary person or a dictionary might use those terms. Uh, and so they can say things that they regard as technically true because they know the secret definition they're using. One of these terms uh, has, has long been acquire or collect. Um, they would often... Uh, make claims about, well, we only collect the communications of persons overseas or we only acquire the communications of suspected terrorists. And then it would turn out that by acquire, they really mean look at, uh, which is not what an ordinary uh, person, I think, use. You'd say, uh, you might say, well, I have acquired a bunch of data. I haven't looked at it yet, but I've acquired it because it's on my computer. Uh, now we know what you had to ask if you wanted to know whether they had something but hadn't looked at it, the uh, the term of art apparently there was obtain and retain. Uh, is that just means receiving the data from the, the ether? Right. The data has come into a government computer as opposed to been processed into a, a readable form and exposed to uh, a human being. Um, so I think this is a, a fascinating kind of case study in how the rules shifted over time, uh, not just to allow. Uh, the agency to do more of what it wanted, uh, but to 
cover, in effect, uh, their own past assumption of authority uh, and and make it appear uh, as though it, w- it was no such thing, as though it had been blessed all along. Uh, w- one other interesting detail is that uh, you do see that as these authorizations evolve over time, the very first one does use the phrase probable cause. I think this is interesting because uh, when Stellar Wind or the telephone wiretap portion of Stellar Wind was disclosed by the New York Times, uh, Dick Cheney and other officials talked about uh, it being something subject to effectively a probable cause standard. Yes, they had circumvented the judges on the FISA court, and they were just using this uh, presidential directive instead of judicial warrants uh, to do the wiretapping, but they were observing the same standard of probable cause. And it looks like the very first version of the president's authorization did say probable cause. And then over time, that shifted to reasonable grounds to believe, which is a much – so it's not – you must have – probable cause to believe the target is engaged in terrorism, but you have to have you know, one of the parties to the communication. And of course, one of those parties could be a U.S. person, um, but rather uh, reasonable grounds to believe. And that's a, you know, a, a, a pretty dramatically different standard. I it's, mean, it's essentially a one could imagine a set of circumstances in which... Reason, right, reasonable grounds to believe means you have some modicum of suspicion um, I mean, people talk about reasonable, uh, articulable suspicion as as the uh, standard to stop what stop someone on the street and pat them down or, or uh, you know pull over a car. Um, nobody thinks that's the appropriate standard for uh, searching someone's home. Um, that requires probable cause, and I think you know by the same token, um, you know the standard for a pat down is not the right standard for reading someone's emails or listening to their communications. Uh, probable cause is the appropriate standard, and that is the standard uh, that in general, we have, even in intelligence law, we apply, um, that there has to be probable cause to believe that the target is an agent of a foreign power. Um, so this is actually, I mean, I just encourage people to go to the, the New York Times and, and look through this document because I think it is, uh, you know, a really fascinating illustration of how a system that appears to be strictly rule-governed, um, in fact, is governed by terms defined in the end by uh, the very people they're meant to be governing. And you see uh, one branch of the government seeking to avoid entirely uh, entangling themselves with the decisions of another branch and having to abide by them. I mean, one of the inspiring things about this to some extent is that uh, I think you know James Comey's role in this, I think, has, has, has perhaps caused him to at least, you know, initially when he was appointed, be viewed as uh, some kind of privacy champion or civil liberties champion. It seems uh, clear in in respect that this was more about fine points of the law rather than whether uh, bulk collection of people's communications metadata should be occurring at all. Um, But you do see uh, here that someone inside the system, um, when it became a little too obvious that they were playing Calvin Ball, said, look... um, you know, I think Congress needs to be notified about this. If you're authorizing NSA to uh, collect through what is, by the terms of the statute, clearly electronic surveillance, all this metadata about people who are pretty clearly not um, al-Qaeda or associated forces, um, at the very least, Congress had better know about it because it's not obvious they thought they were signing off on that at all. Um, so it is, it, it's, it's reassuring in the sense that you see um, someone within the system saying – no, Mr. President, and being willing to resign over it, and ultimately, at least forcing the program under the uh, uh, the aegis or the supervision of 
the FISA court in, in, in pieces, uh, although the, the inspiring character is perhaps diminished slightly by the fact that it doesn't seem to have substantively changed a whole lot about how uh, this bulk collection was occurring. Julian Sanchez is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Read more of his work at Cato.org.